In this week's edition of Goal Weekly, we cover Arsenal's title decider against Manchester City, Mauricio Pochettino's imminent move to Chelsea, why Wrexham's ownership are good for football, and more. First up, Arsenal have had an incredible season. Losing to Man City and potentially the Premier League title doesn't change that. The Gunners face arguably their biggest game in a generation on Wednesday against Pep Guardiola's Premier League champions. It's the game that we've all been waiting for. It may not quite be winner-takes-all just yet, but Arsenal's trip to Manchester City on Wednesday is certainly starting to feel like that because of what's gone on during the past few weeks. After seven straight wins in the Premier League, it looked like Mikel Arteta's side were making light work of the unexpected position they were in at the top of the table. But then they hit the bump that many were waiting all season for them to hit, drawing three successive games, at Liverpool, West Ham, and at home to Southampton. And with City finding top gear at the same time, the commanding lead Arsenal had at the top of the table disappeared almost in the blink of an eye. The Gunners may head to the Etihad Stadium with a five-point advantage over City, but Pep Guardiola's side crucially have two games in hand. So a home win on Wednesday night would leave the champions on the verge of a third successive league title and leave Arsenal needing a miracle to end their long 19-year wait to get their hands on the Premier League trophy. It's going to be a tough night and challenge, Arteta said, but the opportunity is incredible for us. We knew from the beginning, if you want to win the Premier League, you have to go to Spurs, and you have to beat them. You have to go to Chelsea, and you have to beat them. This is what we've been doing. That's why we are here. Now we have to go to City, and we have to beat them. If you want to be champions, you have to win those matches. It's as simple as that. Wednesday night is a huge game for Arsenal. There's no doubt about that. In terms of the Premier League, it could certainly be described as the biggest game the club has had in a generation. There will be lots of Arsenal fans who have never experienced a match as big of this. Those who were around during the start of the Arsene Wenger era know what to expect. Those titanic battles with Manchester United every season are a thing of a legend. Before that, when George Graham was at the helm, it was the games against Liverpool that would define a season. But it's been a long time since Arsenal have dealt with games of such magnitude. Such has been the size of the gap that has opened up between themselves and the Premier League's top clubs over the past 15 years or so. At some points, some of which were as recent as a couple of years ago, it felt like that gap would never be bridged. But it has been, thanks to the incredible work done by Arteta and his coaching staff, and some excellent recruitment in the transfer market. The fact that Arsenal are going into a game as big as the one on Wednesday highlights how far they've come in such a short space of time. And it shows why, whatever happens at the Etihad, this is a season that should be celebrated in North London. No one included them in the title conversation when the season got underway. But here they are. Top of the table with May just around the corner. We knew from the beginning that City was the team to beat, probably with Liverpool, because of what those teams have done in the last six or seven years, Arteta said. We wanted to close that gap as much as we possibly could, and we are toe-to-toe -to -toe with them. It's just incredible to be in the position we're in. Arsenal go into Wednesday's game having won 23 of 32 league matches so far this season. No Arsenal side in history has ever won more games at this stage of a Premier League campaign not even the Invincibles. And when you factor in that, Arteta's team have drawn their last three matches, that makes it even more remarkable. They have scored 77 goals during those 32 games. 
Again, that's a number that no other Gunners team has even been able to hit at this stage of a season in the Premier League. The closest anyone came was in 2009-2010, when Wenger's side found the net 74 times. Arsenal have gone so far beyond expectation levels this season, and they have given their fans so much to enjoy. They won at Tottenham and Chelsea, they've beaten Liverpool and Manchester United, and they've reconnected with a fan base that had fallen out of love with their team. And of course, barring a collapse of epic proportions between now and the end of the season, they've secured Champions League football again for the first time since 2017. When the season began in August, Champions League qualification was the aim of everyone at Arsenal. There was no talk of a title bid. It was all about a top-four spot, having been pipped so painfully to the post by Spurs last time out. That's what the target was, and it's a target that was secured a long time ago, albeit not mathematically. Mikel changed the structure of the club, Guardiola said on Tuesday, while discussing Arsenal's improvement. He changed a lot of players. He has been supported by the hierarchy of the club, and that is why the success is there. Arsenal in the last years never was there, and this season, they make another step because all season they have been there. I have been impressed. They have been really good. It's been a season to remember at Arsenal. There have been so many special moments, and Arteta will desperately be hoping there are a couple more to come in the remaining six games, starting at the Etihad on Wednesday. But if things do not go their way and City go on and claim yet another title, there will be nothing for Arsenal to feel ashamed about. They've exceeded all expectations and given their fans so much to enjoy. It's been a remarkable story, one that no one expected. It now remains to be seen whether it gets the fairy tale ending it perhaps deserves. Up next, forget Tottenham and PSG sacking. Mauricio Pochettino is the ideal man to kickstart Chelsea's new era. The Argentine is set to do the unthinkable by taking over at Stamford Bridge. But it's a move that makes sense, despite his Spurs love affair. As their exhaustive and exhausting search for a permanent manager draws to its conclusion, Chelsea's co-sporting directors Paul Winstanley and Lawrence Stewart believe they have found their man, Mauricio Pochettino. It was unthinkable that the cherished former Tottenham boss would ever take charge of another Premier League club, let alone one of Spurs' greatest rivals. But the concept of Pochettino taking his seat in the Stamford Bridge dugout is something that Chelsea and Spurs fans alike will have to get used to, with the Argentine on the verge of making a stunning return to London. It will be a divisive appointment in some quarters, given his seemingly unbreakable bond with the Tottenham fan base, however one-sided that relationship has become. But he is the ideal candidate to guide Chelsea out of the mess they currently find themselves in, and on to better things. Things were supposed to be wildly different at the end of Todd Bailey and Baydad Egbali's first full season as Chelsea owners, especially after two transfer windows of lavish spending. But instead of fighting for silverware, the Blues find themselves out of each cup competition and desperately staving off a descent into the mire of lower mid-table, more than 30 points off the pace set by Premier League leaders Arsenal and second-placed Manchester City. Similarly, but perhaps not as drastically, Pochettino's stock has dipped since his unceremonious dismissal at Paris Saint-Germain a year ago, but he is still regarded as one of the best in the business and will be keen to prove that at Stamford Bridge, much like another PSG cast-off, Thomas Tuchel before him. As a result, Pochettino's arrival cannot be viewed as a top manager joining a top club, but rather a coach with a point to prove joining a team that is in desperate need of galvanizing.
Chelsea could well be the perfect fit. Pochettino's reputation is built upon improving struggling teams and helping them to reach their full potential. He guided Southampton to what was their highest-ever Premier League finish in 2013-14, before famously taking a Tottenham side that had been incapable of qualifying for the Champions League to the final of the 2019 edition. That incremental improvement at both clubs has been underpinned by an exciting, front-footed brand of football, and Boli and Egbali will be desperate for Pochettino to implement those ideas with an expensively assembled squad bursting with unfulfilled attacking talent. Chelsea and Pochettino are wounded animals, and together they could become something very dangerous. That's not to say that Pochettino turned Spurs' fortunes around as soon as he arrived at White Hart Lane. He only took Tottenham from 6th to 5th in his first season and still missed out on that elusive Champions League place, something for which Tim Sherwood was effectively sacked a year prior. The key in North London, though, was that he was given the time and afforded the patience to mold the team in his image, ultimately building something incredibly special over a five-year period and breathing life into the club both on and off the pitch. Given the resources and existing squad that will be at his disposal at Stamford Bridge, Pochettino will back himself to replicate his exploits on the west side of the capital and oversee gradual improvement. A title challenge within the next three seasons should perhaps be the realistic aim. At 51, he is still relatively young, he has previously professed his love of living in London, and he is an advocate for the attacking brand of football that Chelsea owners seem to want their team to play. Boley and Egbali had hinted that they wanted a manager for the long term, and there would be patience throughout the bad times, but having pulled the plug on their Graham Potter project very prematurely, they should have some confidence that Pochettino has the credentials to oversee the development of the team for a number of years. The general consensus has always been that Pochettino's profound connection with the Tottenham fanbase would be a stumbling block to a move to any other Premier League club. As it turns out, that is probably not the case and he is even willing to join one of Spurs' most bitter rivals. The Chelsea hierarchy has reportedly been pleasantly surprised by the fans' reception to the news that Pochettino has emerged as the favorite for the role, which is perhaps testament to the Argentine's popularity throughout the game and a reflection of a desire to laud his arrival over Spurs. Surprisingly, this is unlikely to be a divisive appointment, with Blues followers clearly craving the kind of synergy the coach fostered with Tottenham supporters during his time there, especially having failed to warm to his predecessor Potter, and another stick with which to beat their foes across the capital. It's not just the supporters who are in favor of Pochettino becoming Chelsea manager. The players are keen on the idea too. According to The Telegraph, the news of his imminent arrival has generated excitement in the dressing room with many members of the squad aware of the Argentines' coaching, motivational ability, and man-management skills. During his time in North London, it was clear that Pochettino's players would run through a brick wall for him, and having looked distinctly unmotivated at times under both Potter and interim manager Frank Lampard, the Chelsea squad is clearly prepared to get down to work for the right person. Pochettino is widely regarded as one of football's good guys, but unlike his predecessor Potter, he still possesses that edge that will endear the Chelsea fanbase to him far more than niceties. Potter was considered to be a nice guy to a fault, as the Stamford Bridge faithful failed to warm to him and he seemingly failed to command respect in the dressing room, with some players lowering themselves to making Harry Potter jibes as his expense. Pochettino is a man who can do both. 
His warm, relaxed demeanor is lapped up by journalists and supporters, but he is perfectly capable of losing his temper and letting his emotions get the better of him on the touchline. That can sometimes get you into trouble, but it is exactly what Chelsea fans crave after Potter's perceived emotionlessness. His experience counts for a lot, too. While there is no doubting the job Potter had done at Brighton, there was a perception that the Chelsea job was too big a leap at this stage of his career. And that looked to be the case despite him not being afforded the time to turn things around. Pochettino has a demonstrable track record at every level. Guiding Espanyol from relegation battlers to mid-table, Southampton to new heights, Tottenham to a Champions League final, and PSG to League One success. It is of course not the most glittering CV ever to have been perused by those high up at Stamford Bridge, but his reputation precedes him, and he has done enough to command respect. One of the hallmarks of Pochettino's success at Tottenham was his development of young players and emphasis on homegrown talent. The coach most notably oversaw academy product and record goalscorer Harry Kane's remarkable rise to prominence, having previously been a serial loney, while he signed Sun Hyung Min as a relatively unknown 23-year-old who has gone on to become one of the best wingers on the planet. Dele Ali too, enjoyed the best years of his career working under Pochettino. Meanwhile, other Hotspur Way graduates such as Harry Winks, Danny Rose, and Ryan Mason were all given their opportunity and became first-team regulars. His track record at Tottenham with young players should be hugely encouraging for Chelsea's burgeoning ranks of under-25 talent, and especially English starlets such as Mason Mount, Noni Madueka, Connor Gallagher, and Carney Chukwemeka. However, given how much talent he will have at his disposal, Pochettino's time at PSG should perhaps serve as a warning, as he struggled to juggle a bloated squad of big names and find space for up-and-coming academy products. He even had to defend his failure to select young players in the latter stages of last season, saying, I didn't say they were going to play. I said they might have some minutes. We've built a team with 30 established players. It wasn't changed in January. The room for young players is not big. They have to deserve this playing time. Chelsea will hope a summer clear-out of their own crowded ranks will mean they don't face the same problems. Chelsea's search for a new manager has been so drawn out that they have backed themselves into something of a corner. Former Barcelona and Spain boss Luis Enrique was seen as the best fit by a large section of the club's followers, but he dropped out of contention following a second round of talks. Recently sacked Bayern Munich head coach Julian Nagelsmann was consequently considered to be the clear favorite but he backed away from the process having seemingly been irked by Chelsea's failure to settle on him. It was brief that Chelsea hadn't wanted Nagelsmann in the first place, but his withdrawal will no doubt have been a blow to co-sporting directors when Stanley and Stewart, as an exciting candidate, was taken away from them, and their already limited options were cut down significantly. There are parallels between Pochettino and Nagelsmann. The German took lowly Hoffenheim from the brink of relegation to Champions League qualification, and RB Leipzig to the semi-finals of that competition in 2019. But his fiery exit from Bayern was perhaps a warning sign that he is a more volatile option when Chelsea are in dire need of stability. With Luis Enrique overlooked, there is absolutely no doubt that Pochettino is the outstanding remaining candidate. Up next, don't be jealous. Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney buying Wrexham has been good for British football. The Welsh side are back in the Football League after 15 years away, but their Hollywood owners are not universally loved by lower league supporters. A 3-1 win over Boreham Wood finally clinched the National League title for Wrexham, 
providing a Hollywood ending to one of the most incredible seasons in non-league history. Since Ryan Reynolds and Rob McElhenney shocked the world by taking over the unfashionable Welsh club, the Red Dragons have attracted adoration from around the world. Fueled by the success of the immensely popular Welcome to Wrexham docuseries, as well as a fascinating rivalry with Notts County, interest in their exploits only increased this season. However, that is not to say that everyone has been charmed by non-league's most unlikely owners. Since their promotion was confirmed, debates have been raging about whether Wrexham's story should be celebrated or dismissed as simply another example of financial doping in football. While they have indeed spent a lot since taking over, the positives far outweigh any potential negatives that have accompanied the Hollywood stars rocking up in the National League. Let Goal outline why these killjoys are wrong about Reynolds and McElhenney's ownership. Reawakening a Sleeping Giant The starting point when defending this controversial takeover must be that if any side deserved a break, it was Wrexham. This is a club with a rich, interesting history. The racecourse ground, where they play their home fixtures, is the oldest international football stadium still in use today, and it has hosted more Wales games than any other venue. Prior to their relegation in 2008, the Red Dragons had enjoyed an uninterrupted 87-year stay in the Football League, testament to the strength of their support and on-field pedigree. After that catastrophe, the club had been expected to bounce straight back up, but this sleeping giant would end up staying in non-league for over a decade. Things could have been a whole lot worse, too, if it wasn't for the heroic efforts of their supporters in 2011. After several years of financial problems, the Wrexham Supporters Trust finally completed their purchase of the club from much-maligned former owners Jeff Moss and Ian Roberts. They steadied the ship in the years that followed, but struggled to provide the level of investment required to get Wrexham out of an extremely competitive National League. They might have finally got the job done in the 2019-20 season, only for the pandemic to curtail their efforts. Not long after this, news of the Hollywood takeover broke. Reynolds and McElhenney's money has given Wrexham the opportunity to return to their natural level on the pitch and also safeguard their future off of it. With the new owners purchasing the leasehold for the crumbling racecourse ground and planning developments, it would take a stone-hearted football fan to say that Wrexham fans do not deserve it after rallying to save their club when hope was dwindling. Uplifting the Community It's not just the on-field success that has made Reynolds and McElhenney so beloved in Wrexham. The Americans have also fully embraced and uplifted the local community. The pair's acts of generosity are too numerous to list in their entirety here. A few highlights include them matching food bank donations in December 2022, donating £10,000 to a charity fundraiser after the death of Wrexham player Jordan Davies's baby, and Reynolds funding Deadpool-inspired football kits for a local under-12s team. The owner's support of the women's team also resulted in promotion in April. The fact that the owners have been so visible in their support of the team, despite both having extremely busy schedules and being based over 5,000 miles away, should not be underestimated either. There are countless absentee chairmen across the footballing pyramid, but Reynolds and McElhenney have always operated transparently and been accessible to fans. Even without the investment, this makes a welcome change to the way many other clubs operate. Raising the Profile of the National League Wrexham's story has brought an unprecedented level of interest to the fifth tier of English football over the past two seasons. This was never more evident than when the Red Dragons finally faced off against longtime promotion sparring partners Notts County in April. Heading into the fixture, both teams were on 100-plus points, with the game essentially being a straight shootout for the sole National League promotion spot. 
Wrexham eventually triumphed 3-2 in a truly incredible game for neutrals where Ben Foster saved a penalty in second-half stoppage time to make sure of the three points. After the dust had settled, some incredible stats emerged, revealing a scarcely believable level of engagement. Overall, the match attracted 61,923 mentions on Twitter, even more than Liverpool versus Arsenal, which was played one day prior. In addition, the full-time announcement graphic from the racecourse ground attracted 10.5 million Twitter views, over double what the Liverpool and Arsenal accounts garnered combined for their game. In addition, Google Analytics data shows that those based in the United States have conducted more searches for Wrexham than for a string of Premier League clubs at times over the past 12 months. Without Reynolds and McElhenney, this simply does not happen. And if even a fraction of those who have followed Wrexham's story decide to visit their local lower league club as a result, it could have a drastic effect on the footballing pyramid. Speeding through long-awaited changes, Reynolds and McElhenney's influence has also encouraged National League administrators, who have attracted significant criticism in recent years, to implement a series of rule changes. For instance, at the start of the season, Wrexham successfully lobbied FIFA to rescind an anomalous rule that prevented the club signing players outside of two allotted transfer windows. Unlike other National League sides, who can register new signings at any point until the fourth Thursday in March, the Red Dragons' unique status, they play in the English League system but are administered by the Welsh FA, meant they operated under far more restrictive conditions. That is not the only time they have taken on the National League and won. Back in August, Reynolds blasted the decision to prevent Wrexham's international supporters from watching their games via a club-led streaming service. After months of maximum effort, the decision, through inaction of the Vanarama National League, to not allow domestic international streaming of matches of Wrexham and the other clubs in the league is truly baffling, he tweeted. Depriving every team in our league the chance to expand the fan base while adding to league revenue benefits everyone. This is a spotlight and a chance, and we ask the National League to take it. And we urge Vanarama and BT Sport to help them find the wisdom to do so. A few months later, the National League player was launched, a pay-per-view service that allowed international fans to watch their favorite teams in action every week. It has been a roaring success. Lastly, Reynolds and McElhenney have consistently, and very publicly, supported calls for the National League to receive an additional automatic promotion place. While not everyone agrees with this stance, reports suggest that the change is likely to come soon, again demonstrating the influence Wrexham's high-profile owners have had on the non-league game. Notts County spent money too. One of the principal criticisms of Wrexham's promotion is that the owners' lavish spending had deprived sensible Notts County of their rightful place in the football league. The Magpies could still secure their EFL return through the playoffs, which they will be heavy favorites for after a record-breaking campaign but using them as a stick to beat Wrexham with is a little bit silly. Players of the quality of Macaulay Langstaff, Jody Jones, John Bostock, and several others certainly don't come cheap at this level, and neither do managers like Luke Williams. While it would be unfair to suggest County are being run unsustainably, they possess the infrastructure to survive and potentially thrive one if not two leagues above after all. They definitely are not run on a shoestring budget, it would be extraordinarily harsh if they didn't go up this season, but that isn't necessarily Wrexham's fault. They are simply proving an age-old rule of football. Namely, the team will the biggest wage budget normally wins the league, not had it all their own way. Naysayers have often characterized Wrexham's promotion as a foregone conclusion. 
This ignored the various setbacks Reynolds and McElhenney have had to endure since taking over the club. The 2021-22 season was far from a cakewalk, with the team suffering a crippling double heartbreak at the end of the campaign. First, their day out at Wembley was ruined when Bromley beat them in the FA Trophy final. Even more damagingly, Wrexham then lost in the National League playoff semifinals to eventually promoted Grimsby Town. After that, there was questions about how they would be able to respond, as well as speculation over the future of manager Phil Parkinson. Unlike some other big-spending American owners higher up the leagues, Reynolds and McElhenney kept faith and were rewarded with promotion, something they have had to graft for since arriving in North Wales. This just isn't sports washing. One particularly unfair criticism leveled at Wrexham's owners is conflating them with the similarly big-spending ownerships at the likes of Manchester City, Newcastle, and prior to Roman Abramovich's departure, Chelsea. In these instances, the ownerships have clear and rather sinister intentions of using their investment in football as a way of laundering their reputations on the world stage. Reynolds, a world-famous and beloved Hollywood star, and McElhenney, the co-creator of the longest-running live-action sitcom of all time, have no need for this. Although the pair have never given an entirely straight answer as to why they chose to invest in Wrexham, it seems like their ownership was born of a desire to have some fun. And this initial interest has developed into a deep-rooted and heartfelt connection to do right by the community. Yes, if you're a fan of a National League club, it must have been frustrating to watch the famous pair get all the attention as they splash the cash. However, imbalancing the competitiveness of a fifth-tier football league just isn't the same as sports washing, and these comparisons are lazy, unhelpful, and unfair. Up next, Wout Vegorst, Man United's unlikely cult hero winning new fans after epic FA Cup celebrations. The Dutchman's passion and effort means he will be remembered fondly by United fans, even despite his lack of quality and goals. When Victor Lindelof buried his penalty to seal Manchester United's shootout victory over Brighton in Sunday's FA Cup semi-final at Wembley Stadium, he was naturally mobbed by his teammates. But as the majority of players ran towards the Swede in front of the goal where the penalties had been taken and which the Brighton fans were behind, Wout Vegorst went the other way. With all the energy of Usain Bolt in an Olympic final, the Dutchman sprinted towards the other end of the pitch where the United fans were and performed an epic knee slide. After a couple of fist pumps in front of the fans, he headed straight back towards the rest of the squad to join in the celebrations. But fans don't forget moments like that, and the gesture showed why. For all his technical shortcomings, Veghorst will be remembered fondly for his spell with the club. No matter what happens in the final against Manchester City, the striker and supporters will always have this moment under the arch. Given Veghorst has only scored two goals in 24 appearances for United and is still yet to find the net in the Premier League, many fans were dreading the thought of him taking him penalty in the shootout. There was even more pressure on him given it was sudden death, and Brighton had scored the first penalty meaning a miss would have ended United's FA Cup journey there and then. But just as in the Netherlands' penalty shootout against Argentina in the World Cup, Vegers kept his cool from the spot, and against Brighton, he was the picture of calm, sending Robert Sanchez the wrong way and rolling the ball along the floor into the net. Whoever said the 6-6 striker was a donkey? What Vegers did next was equally pivotal. He grabbed the ball after scoring and gave it a knowing kiss. He then presented it to Solly March, the only United player to hand the ball to the next Brighton taker during the whole shootout. 
David De Gea also did his part in psyching out the midfielder by having a quiet word with him before taking it. No matter how minimal Vagorst and De Gea's actions might seem, they clearly had some kind of impact, as March ballooned his penalty over the bar. Lindelof became United's hero when he placed the decisive spot kick into the top corner of the net, but do not underestimate Vagorst's role in the shootout victory. Vagorst's knee slide was not the only time he had sought to rev up United's fans during the game. Deep into extra time, he drew a foul from compatriot Joel Veltman by the corner flag, winning a dangerous free kick. He did not waste the opportunity to get in the faces of United's fans, imploring them to make some noise for what was a good scoring chance. As it happened, Marcel Sabitzer wasted the opportunity, sending the free kick high across the box and away to safety for Brighton. Vigor started his first 19 matches for United after cutting short his loan spell at Besiktas to head to Old Trafford. His ability to retain his place in the starting lineup despite offering not much of a goal threat confused a lot of United fans. And the truth was, he was only remained in the team because Anthony Marshall was still recovering from injury. Since the Frenchman has returned to full fitness, Veghorst has not started a game. And the harsh truth is that Marshall makes the team much better than the Dutchman. He can hold the ball up better, makes more intelligent passes, and is far more likely to score. However, Marshall was terrible against Brighton. He lacked energy, his passing was sloppy, and he missed the target with his one chance. With Brighton having 60% of possession, this was a game which suited Veghorst far more than Marshall, and the Dutchman was far more effective than his fellow striker in the 19 minutes he was on the pitch. Despite his efforts at Wembley, United should not even flirt with the idea of making Veghorst's loan move from Burnley permanent. He simply does not have the quality needed for a Manchester United striker. For a team that wants to build on this encouraging season and challenge for the Premier League title, two goals and three assists in four months are not nearly good enough. All the passion, hard work, and goodwill from fans in the world cannot compensate for his lack of output. His shortcomings have been most evident against the top sides, and he offered very little in the defeats to Arsenal, Newcastle, or the harrowing 7-0 thrashing at Liverpool. There are plenty of top young strikers United should be targeting for next season, and Veghorst is not one of them. But that does not mean Veghorst's time at the club has been a failure. Faced with no transfer budget and a Cristiano Ronaldo-sized hole to fill, he was a low-cost, short-term option. He has not exceeded expectations, but he has done okay. Of the 19 matches he has started, United have won 12, drawn 4, and lost 3. Against many opponents, he has proved a useful foil for Marcus Rashford and he has helped United reach two domestic cup finals in the same season for only the third time. He got an assist in the Carabao Cup final victory over Newcastle, and played his own part in United sneaking past Brighton. He will be heading back to Wembley for a third time against Manchester City in June, and, if used wisely, can help United's mission to bust their noisy neighbours' treble ambitions. And if they somehow end up beating Pep Guardiola's side, Vegorst will be running straight towards the United fans again. Up next, Man City were right to sell Oleksandr Zinchenko and Gabriel Jesus to Arsenal, even though it fueled Gunner's title bid. The former City duo have been crucial for Mikel Arteta's tabletoppers, but that doesn't mean it wasn't the correct call to let them go in 2022. At a number of points this season, Manchester City's decision to sell Gabriel Jesus and Oleksandr Zinchenko to Arsenal looked like a fatal miscalculation. When City decided to move both players on in the summer, and the Gunners came in with attractive offers, no one at the club could have imagined that Michele Arteta's side would become title contenders the next season. 
Little did Pep Guardiola and the city board know it, but they were fueling their greatest rivals for the Premier League crown. The striker and left-back have been among Arsenal's two most important players in their surprise title bid, and both will line up in Wednesday's title showdown at the Etihad Stadium. If they can inspire Arsenal to victory and send them eight points clear at the top of the table, City are likely to be criticized for gifting the Gunners two of their most influential players. But whatever happens on Wednesday and at the end of the season, City were right to let the players leave. It cannot be denied that Jesus and Zinchenko have turned Arsenal from a good team into a great one, an unstoppable side as Guardiola dubbed them ahead of Wednesday's match. While Jesus was struggling to get into the City team even before the arrival of Erling Haaland, he has proved to be the perfect striker for Arteta. He has been mostly clinical when he has been on the pitch, scoring nine goals and contributing five assists in only 18 league starts. But he has also managed to link Arsenal's attack superbly, getting the best out of fellow forwards Gabriel Martinelli and Bukayo Saka, the team's leading scorers. Zinchenko has also struggled with injuries, making only 23 starts, but he has had a huge influence on the team both on and off the pitch. The Ukrainian believed Arsenal were capable of a title charge at the start of the season, and his teammates laughed at the thought until he was proved right following the team's blistering first half of campaign, in which they took 50 points from their first 19 matches. It is tempting to conclude that he developed his winning mentality while at City, where he lifted four Premier League titles, four League Cups, one FA Cup, and reached the Champions League final. It is tempting to say with hindsight that it was foolish to give a direct rival like Arsenal two valuable players with title-winning experience. However, this is not the only time they have sold an important player to a fellow competitor. Last summer, they also sold Raheem Sterling to Chelsea. At the time, before Todd Bailey started sacking managers for fun and buying every player under the sun, Chelsea looked like more of a threat than Arsenal and Sterling had just finished the season with 13 goals for City. City also took a risk when they sent Joao Cancelo on loan to Bayern Munich in January, and could have ended up ruining that move when they were paired with the Bundesliga side in the Champions League quarterfinals. In the end, City comfortably beat Bayern 4-1 on aggregate, and Cancelo was benched for the first leg. The truth is, whenever you sell a player, you risk living to regret it if they go on to succeed in their new team. City also had little choice but to sell Zinchenko and Jesus, to a top Premier League side, given the growing financial might of the English top flight in comparison to other leagues in Europe, which are still feeling the effects of the coronavirus pandemic. Barcelona, who had bought Ferran Torres off City for £46 million in January 2022, had to perform a series of financial maneuvers to finance their lavish spending in 2022. Real Madrid spent a total of £70 million on Aurelian Chouameni last summer, while their only other major signing, Antonio Rudiger, arrived on a free transfer. Atletico Madrid, the third force in Spain, spent under £25 million last summer. Arsenal, though, were able to offer £50 million for Jesus and £30 million for Zinchenko. That is equivalent to Juventus's total transfer budget last summer and far more than AC Milan, Inter and Napoli spent. If City wanted to make any money from Zinchenko, Jesus and Sterling, they had to sell them to a competitor. City took the gamble of strengthening Chelsea and Arsenal, and as a result managed to end the summer in profit, despite doing some eye-catching spending of their own. They brought in £143 million through the sales of Sterling, Zinchenko and Jesus, plus Pedro Porro. That windfall allowed them to spend £51 million on Erling Haaland, 
plus a reported weekly salary of £865,000. They spent a further £42 million on Calvin Phillips, while also adding Manuel Akanji and Sergio Gomez to their squad for a combined £26 million, all without having to worry about breaking UEFA's financial fair play rules down the line. For a club with one of the richest owners in football, City managed to balance the books while improving their squad. Strengthening Arsenal was a small price to pay for an outstanding summer of business. Money wasn't the only reason City sold Zinchenko and Jesus, however. Both players had asked to leave the club in search of more playing time. In five seasons at City, Jesus never made more than 21 Premier League starts. For a player who had only recently turned 25 and aspired to be a starter for Brazil at the 2022 World Cup, that was not nearly enough and his chances of starting games had just been further reduced by the arrivals of Holland and Julian Alvarez. Zinchenko felt even less important. In his five seasons at the Etihad Stadium, the Ukrainian started less than half of City's league games, and in his last campaign started just ten times. Both players yearned to be more than squad players, and that's what they have become at Arsenal. Zinchenko, for example, has started more than double the amount of games in his first season at Arsenal compared with his last at City, despite niggling injury problems and the fact there is still one month to go. It is little use having players around that don't want to be there. The players themselves can become demotivated, and there is a risk of the discontent affecting the rest of the squad and dragging them down. When they want to leave, they cannot stay. Guardiola said last year when Jesus, Zinchenko, and Sterling left, I wish the best for Gabriel and Olex. They are fantastic people, and they helped us a lot. I never say one player leave, it's the club, and it's their decision. Erling and Julian came and it's difficult for Gabriel. What happened with Gabriel is normal. It was a good deal. City's handling of both players demonstrated how the club is always thinking two moves ahead. They had already planned for the future by signing Holland and Alvarez to replace Jesus and Sterling. And for the price they received for Zinchenko, they bought two able replacements in Akanji and Gomez, while Nathan Ake has also developed his own game to play at left back. Contrast Guardiola and City's management of the situation with how Manchester United refused to let Jesse Lingard move to West Ham in 2021, leading him to waste a crucial year of his career. And look at how they tried to keep hold of Cristiano Ronaldo last summer, when he desperately wanted to move, finally getting his way in November by mutually agreeing to tear up his contract after embarrassing the club with his infamous interview with Piers Morgan. Or take how Tottenham kept hold of the likes of Danny Rose, Jan Vertonghen, Toby Alderweireld and Christian Eriksen for too long, paying the price further down the line when they needed to renew an aging, declining squad with little money as they had refused to sell important players. City, meanwhile, have a highly motivated squad that is making a serious bid to win a treble of the Premier League, Champions League, and FA Cup. Arsenal have pushed them all the way in the league, helped by Zinchenko and Jesus, but the title race has undoubtedly made City a better team, keeping them on their toes. Would that have been the case if they had refused to let their two players leave out of fear of strengthening a rival? Guardiola certainly has no regrets about what happened last year. The club made the decision, he said on Tuesday. It is not about just one part. The players were agreed. The club wanted to sell. The club, Arsenal, wanted to buy. The club took a decision, and that it is the risk. They are happy. We don't have any doubts about Gabriel and Olex and what they have done. Thanks for listening. Hit subscribe so you don't miss out on our next episode.